0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are at that moment of Torah where we have the encounter between God and Israel for the first time. The people have observed the work of uh, of God in our story, um, they have heard from Moshe what God has said, but we've not yet had the actual meeting between God and Israel um, that involves relationship, that involves God acts on behalf of Israel, but Israel doesn't have a choice, really. Now comes the moment where the divine uh, encounters the people Israel in its entirety, and we have this moment of the divine offering relationship and it's up to the people to accept or decline. So like every important moment, mythic moment in our people's history, there are lots of different interpretations about the mood of this moment on either side of the equation. There is a a vast difference of opinion even on the same page, we've talked about this before, even on the same page of Talmud, um, midrashim that say, you know, God went to every other people first and they said, let's hear about it first and then we'll decide. Um, only the Jewish people said, and they, they were last, this piddly little people, and God came to them and they said, na'aseva nishma. We'll do it and then tell us about it. Um, on the same page is a Midrash that says, God picked up the mountain, held it over the people and said, will you accept my Torah? If not, your graves are essentially right here. Right. Um, and so it's, it's a for me, it's a wonderful uh, window into the Jewish, like Mark calls Torah, the Jewish mind. Well, if you really want a full expression of the Jewish mind, you have to look at Midrash. Right, and the Midrashic interpretations make no claim at harmony, which I think is fascinating, right? We're very used to a, a philosophy that is informed by Greek thinking, which is that things have to harmonize, right? Everything has to line up in a system where everything is consistent. This is not a Jewish way of thinking. The Jews never bought the Aristotelian split between uh, spirit and matter. They never bought that split And the other thing they never bought was that it had to be a consistent system in order for it to be a system of integrity and of intelligence and of sophistication. The sophistication for the rabbis lies in our ability to hold many different, even conflicting understandings of something together. And I think personally, there is not a more important insight that our people has to offer than that right now, given the situation in the world, given all of that, there is nothing more important than the ability to hold different, including conflicting interpretations of something at the same time and have those be in conversation, not needing to pick one or the other as, uh, as being ultimately right. So there are all these different interpretations of the mood of Sinai and the mood of that encounter. We've looked at different parts of this text over the years. You chose a, a, a Torah portion packed with stuff. Um, not the least of which is Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law. In this parsha, sets up the judiciary. Right? He tells Moses, "You can't do it alone. You're listening to every single case and adjudicating every case. You're exhausted, and, that you, and it's not fair to the people." Which is a very interesting insight. Notice our judiciary, the Israelite system of governance, comes from outside the people. Right? Does not come from within the Israelites. Um, and there's no problem with that in Torah. Right. Moshe's wife is Midianite. His father-in-law is the one that helps him set up the judiciary. Like this is just not a problem. All the later stuff about who's in and who's out is not here in Torah. Just so we're clear. Um, All right. So that that happens. And then we come to this scene. We come to the scene at Har Sinai. Then we're going to get the the text of what happens at Har Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Um, And then next week we see what happens um, back at the ranch while Moshe is getting like the rest of the Torah on c One of my favorite um, Parshiot in the entire Torah is next week. All right, so uh, so let's look, but, but I wanted to, you know that my job this year has been to like kind of go with what draws me. It's an experiment. We'll see how this goes. Um, but, but to go with what draws me right now and not try to figure out too much about why. And I do that with y'all. You know, I figure out why when I'm in here talking about it with y'all. Um, but so what's a drawing me this year is a take on this text that I've ne- and this happens like a lot now that I'm doing this, right? You, you've heard me say this a lot now, um, that I never really noticed before. That I never really paid so much attention to before, but I found this piece by Rabbi Aaron Lieb Smokler, the one we've been looking at who, who uses the spot. Emet. This is not the spot. Emet, this is just her, uh, bringing her, her insight into these verses that we're going to look at. Um, but I've never really thought these were verses like everybody else. I just kind of read over to get to the good stuff. Um, and so I wanted to bring it to you because I found it very interesting and I found her take on it. Very interesting. All right. So let's look at our text. Um, we are just done with Yitro with Moshe's father-in-law um, leaving. So Moshe's father-in-law doesn't stay. He doesn't stay part of the people. Moshe wants him to, he leaves, he goes back to his people. There doesn't seem to be a problem. (laughs) You can hang out together. You can be family together. You can do stuff together. You can advise each other. And then you can go back to your people and and do what you need to do there. That's fine, right? So I just want us to notice this because uh, this is what um, Christine Hayes from Hartman brought to us. All of this language about who's a Jew and all that stuff is so much later. It is just not here. Being Israelite is not the main point. They intermarried all the time. All the time. And it was not an issue. So um, sometimes it was an issue with the issue, but that's different. All right. Let's look at... Good, someone got it. Um, let's look at 19. On the third month, let's say, and the going out of the people of Israel from Eretz Mitzrayim, from the land of Egypt, by Yom What does that literally mean by Yom Hazeh? This day! day, (laughs) They went, uh, Ba'u Midbar Sinai, they come to the wilderness of Sinai. It's not desert, it's wilderness. It's a little different. Wilderness, there's enough for, for, uh, flocks to graze. It is not Sir Lawrence Olivia, I mean, what is it? Lawrence of Arabia. Like, it's not flowing sand dunes. It's not, right? This is, there's enough scrap scrappy stuff for uh, flocks to graze. Um, so they don't think the rabbis gloss over that because it should have said right on that day, but it says on this day. So what do you think the rabbis do with that? It's every day. Okay. So they journeyed from Rifidim. They entered the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness Israel encamped camped there Um, neged hahar, across from the mountain. Um, Moshe, Allah, and and Moshe went up to God, verse 3 of chapter 19. And uh, God called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and declare to the children of Israel. Okay, so one term for the people here is Beit Yaakov, the house of Jacob, the other is Bnei Yisrael, the descendants of Israel. The rabbis say, Beit Yaakov, house refers to female. This is the women, and Bnei Yisrael is masculine, this is the men. To be very clear, say the rabbis, Torah was given to both women and men at the same time. So it is so far a stretch, but I love the reach. Right. I love the purpose of their reach, which is to to be very clear that women were included in case there was any doubt.
2: When you go to the mikvah, you have a bait dean. Right. So so
1: he's what what the rabbis want to suggest is that why it's Department of Redundancy Department. What what, you don't need Torah would never repeat itself, God forbid, unless there was a reason. So why does it say bait Yaakov? And Bnei Yisrael, you only need one of those. There has to be an answer. So for the rabbis, the answer is when you talk about a bayit, you talk about a home, you talk about a house, who's the head of the house? The women. (laughs) The rabbis lived with women. They know who's the head of the house. So they, so when they say Beit Yaakov, they're saying the reason the Torah has that there and not just Bnei Yisrael is because why does Torah add it? There has to be a reason or it wouldn't be here. Um, and the reason is because they want to say it is to be very clear that women were included. Okay. Let me try. And you saw what I did to the uh, to Egypt, um, how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to me. This is a beautiful you know, poetic image that we get a lot. Um, uh,
2: I just wanted to say that's what they called the um, correct the Exodus mm-hmm. from correct. Yemen yes. to
1: because I have friends that were on that, their grandparents were on that and they they said they were vultures to
2: Israel. From so
1: for them, for uh, leaving Ethiopia, um, it was understood that this prophecy was coming true. Yes.
3: Sorry. No. Also, just for those ornithologists, you know, the, no, just an interesting <laughs> thing. The eagles bear their children on their wings, and the reason they can do that without It's because there's nothing um, above them, so other other birds will carry their children, but underneath something higher than them that's going to come down, and the eagles are the highest, so just it's just a biological
1: right. And that and that anything anything attacking from below the nestlings are protected from by mother's wings. Right,
3: because they're on top. Correct. Uh, So that that's. Mm -hmm. I was I thought that was cool. All
1: right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna teach. uh, in a moment, something that Danny Siegel taught us in, in the beautiful setting right outside of Jerusalem, um, in the mountains, an incredible teaching on this verse. But I want to get a little further because you know what's going to happen. Okay, v'atta with an ayin, not an aleph. V'atta, and now, im sh'mu ubikoli. If y'all listen to my voice, u'shmartem briti, and y'all keep my covenant, vihitem li segula, you will be to me. Segula, something treasured. Mikoha amim, from among all the nations. Kili koha aretz, for all of the world is mine. Meaning all the peoples of the world belong to me. You will be segula, you will be somehow special. The Atemti yu li kohanim, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. the goy kadosh, and a holy nation. These are the things you shall speak to B'nai Israel, to the people of Israel. And Moshe comes and speaks to the elders of the people, um, and puts before them all of these things that God had commanded him. And those assembled answers, answered as one, saying, all that Yodhei Vave has spoken, we will do. And Moshe brought back the people's words to Yithebaveh. And Yithebaveh says to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. Then Moshe goes down and reports those words. Right? <laughs> Wait, then Moshe reported the people's words to Yithebaveh. We've talked about this before how everything is very confused. Everything's up and down. How can he go down when he's already been down, but then he goes up, but he's already up? He's already reported. Why is he reporting it? What is happening? And that this is not that they had bad editors, right? (laughs) Editing has not changed all that much in in thousands of years. It's a question of what is your goal in editing? And the goal in editing this section seems to be a literary device that makes it unusual. It's not the straightforward, clear, linear uh, explanation of what happened because that doesn't apply here. This is a different moment in time. This is a different kind of moment in time. This is entirely outside of the norm. And so it's all kind of tangled up and jumbled. That is how rarely the redactor is demonstrating that this is completely unusual. Okay. And God says to Moshe, go to the people. Okay, here we go. Go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, God will come down in the sight of all the people on Mount Sinai. You shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, beware of going up the mountain or touching the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain, mot umat, shall surely die.
2: Uh,
1: Without being touched by either, meaning if someone touches the mountain, they will be killed, not But you can't touch them either, right? Once they touch, you can't touch them. So they will, it is cap, it is capital punishment, essentially, because it's treason. Because God as king is giving the law here, and if you break the law, it's treason. Um, so they won't trespass. They're not supposed to trespass. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then they may go up to the mountain. Moses came down from the mountain to the people and warned the people to stay pure, and they washed their clothes. And he said to them, be ready for the third day. The men among you should not go near a woman, meaning you shall not become impure by sexual intercourse. You are always made impure by emissions, always. Whether you're masturbating, which you're not supposed to do because it's a waste of seed, but whether you masturbate as a man or you have sex with a woman, you are impure. A woman becomes impure because of being exposed to semen. So this is not about don't touch women, which is just crazy that it gets read that way. But this is about you you are supposed to stay pure. That means you shouldn't be engaging in activity that will render you impure. It's kind of a department of duh, right? So I don't know why people need to tangle that into something else. Um Okay. On the third day as morning dawned there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain and a very loud blast of the horn and all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp toward God and they took their place at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke for YHWH had come down upon it in fire. The smoke rose like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled violently. The blare of the horn grew louder and louder. As Moses spoke, God answered him in thunder. Moshe speaks, God thunders. You just have to love, you have to love that image, right? Moshe speaks, how does God answer? In thunder. Of course, right? I mean, right. Yvaffe came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and Ythavaffe called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So there is Aphelah, there is a dense cloud on top of the mountain that contains a concentrated essence of the divine. Only Moshe can go there. Only Moshe, right, can approach that. And God said to Moses, go down, warn the people not to break through to Yudhei Vavhei, to gaze, lest many of them perish. Mm-hmm. The priests also who came near Yudhei Vavhei must stay pure, lest Yudhei Vavhei break out against them. But Moshe said to God, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and sanctify it. So God said to him, go back down and come back together with Aaron, but let not the priests or the people break through to come up to Yodhe lest God break out against them. So notice this language. And Moshe went down to the people and spoke to them and Um, Bert is very sad that we are not going on to, uh, what's next in chapter 20, which is the 10 commandments. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Cause this is where I want to hang out for a minute. First of all, back to our verse about bringing them on Eagle's wings. Um, we learned with Danny Siegel, this, this incredible teaching it's from the Midrash that says, what does it mean that God brought them on Eagle's wings? It doesn't mean out of me That's not what it means. What God did was a miracle. God brought them as if on eagles' wings to the promised land. Let them see it, touch it, taste it, and then took them back to Egypt and said, now tell them to move forward. That they had to have a taste of what they were moving towards To give them the courage, the strength, the energy, the trust, the motivation to leave Egypt, which was an incredibly terrifying, right, in in this rabbinic imagination, in this midrash, an incredibly terrifying possibility, right? And we talked a little bit last time about what does it mean to leave Egypt, and aren't we all terrified to actually... Begin the transformations that we say we want so badly about being free and about being able to make choices and be spiritually mature human beings. Yeah, we talk a big story when it comes to actually making those changes, actually taking the steps to leave Egypt. Not so much, right? It's terrifying. And so I love this midrash that has deep compassion for the people. So all y'all who are all over Compassion for the People last week. Um, here's a beautiful Midrash that says they could not possibly have been expected to do what was going to be necessary to leave Egypt had God not made this miracle of bringing them as if on eagle's wings to the promised land, having them see it, feel it, know that it's real, and then taking them back. Um, and so Danny said this is the rabbinic understanding. Where is this found? This is found in the Talmud, Talmud when we're talking about Shabbat. They quote this verse when they're talking about Shabbat. What's the connection? Why Shabbat? It is a taste of what's possible. It is a taste of, if we do Shabbat every week, it's a taste of what the world could look like. It's a taste of the kind of people we could be. And so we need that every week, say the rabbis, so that we can hopefully go out in the world and make the world look a little more like what we say we want, so that we can go into the world acting a little more like the people we say we want to be. You can't just do that in a vacuum, is what this Midrash is saying. You can't do that, Stam, you're just going to say I want to be a better person, so I'm going to, like, I don't know, reflect on that. Like, it, it doesn't work that way. You have to actually enact and get a taste of what's possible, and that is the motivation to continue to move forward. A beautiful teaching um that I think is... Resonant for us in, in many ways that I'm still not sure about all of them. Um, so we're looking at Rabbi uh, Aaron Lieb Smokler. Um, she is head of Yeshivat Maharat. Um, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Lieb Smokler, let me be clear. Um, she's the spiritual guide uh, and dean of students at uh, Yeshivat Maharat. Um, okay. So I'm going to skip her intro. We just read these verses, right? She's pointing out, go to the people and warn them to stay pure. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. Set boundaries, right? Um, They can't go up. They can't touch it. Whoever does will be put to death. They wash their clothes. And Moshe says, don't go near a woman. Be ready for the third day. All right. And so she says, what must the people know before they experience the ultimate intimacy? So this is the moment of ultimate intimacy. This is the moment where the covenant relationship is formed and is still in place thousands of years later. What must they know? Asks Rabbi Smokler about b- before they have this ultimate experience of intimacy, what message must be communicated? Not once, but three times before they come close to the divine. So She's paying attention to the fact that it gets repeated and repeated and repeated. It's like, okay, duh, like we urge you. Why is it repeated three times? Do not come too close. Remember to stand back. God will appear on the mountain, but you must at the cost of death, restrain from even approaching its perimeter. You shall set boundaries, says God to Moshe. The key to encountering God, it seems, she says, is to get clear on your inability to truly encounter God. So what's rule number one? Don't think you can truly encounter the divine. You know that this is my interpretation of a human can't see me and live. You know my interpretation is this. A human can't experience me in my fullness and expect to remain human. You would be something else. Right? You can't live a human life if you were to experience God in God's fullness. Because we can't handle that. And our brains can't do it. So that's number one. Perhaps Moshe internalized this idea so much that he translated it into human terms. When he came to deliver this paradoxical message to the people, he substituted human relationships, uh, relations for divine ones. To best prepare for intimacy, resist intimacy, he says. It is not only mountains that beckon us to touch and to transgress boundaries. People do too. So stay far away, he suggests. So in preparing for the ultimate intimacy, do not engage in intimacy. You're, you're going to be tempted by the mountain and you're going to be tempted by other people. Refrain. If you really want to be intimate with me and, and, and she's suggesting Moshe is translating this instinct, you know, this communication from God into don't, cause it doesn't say God says tell them not to go near a woman. Moshe says that. So that Moshe is interpreting this whole boundary
2: issue as not just about space, but also about each other. I wonder if some people saying they just cannot believe in God are really expressing what you've just said. We're incapable of experiencing God. Our our minds can't do that. Well, our, we can experience something of the divine. Yes not in its fullness because it would it would blow us apart but we can all say that we don't believe in a white guy in the sky with beard and who zaps things down with thunder every time but the concept of god is just so powerful it's impossible to put your mind around
0: you know uh, on a much more mundane level you can't have a relationship unless you have an identity.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: So let us I want you to, to hang on to that, Mark, because that's where we're going. Uh, this dance between distance and closeness, or this precondition for abstinence in the pursuit of intimacy, echoes Moshe's own introduction to God back at the burning bush. I had never thought about that before. If the collective revelation to the Jewish people is characterized by this paradox implicitly, the personal revelation to Moshe is even more explicit. How, you might ask? Well, in Exodus 3, verses 4 to 5, God calls to Moshe for the first time. If you'll recall, it's right here, Moshe, Moshe, to which he answers, Hineni, here I am. And God's very next words following this invitation to relationship are, Alti do not come any closer approach, but not too much. Establish a relationship, but observe its boundaries. What a delicate balance to strike. So I think this is where Mark is going and she's going to say more and Mark, you of course can say more, but the, this idea is if you want to be in relationship, terrific. And there have to be boundaries around you, around the other person, there has to be careful Observance of those boundaries, and when we cross too much, we would call that codependency, right? I take an Advil when my partner has a headache, right? This is very lesbian. Oh my god, it's so ridiculously lesbian. So, um, right, put on a sweater, I'm cold, right? So, it's that this is codependency is when we don't observe boundaries around you are you, I am I, we are separate. And it is only across that separateness and in some ways through that separateness and that clear understanding of healthy boundaries, that is the only way we achieve true intimacy. We can achieve other kinds of intimacy, but it's not true intimacy is what she's, I think what she's suggesting, right? Is that Those boundaries are the very things that enable us sometimes withholding, sometimes withdrawing, making sure I'm leaving space is just as important or or is one of the most important things in order for us to truly be intimate as individuals.
0: Yes, an example. Uh, When I retired, I asked my wife uh, one day, what's for lunch? And she said, I married you
1: for... Better or worse, but not for lunch. <laughs> okay. You've heard it here first, people. Um, oh, my God. How does this fit in with uh, the story of uh,
0: when Moses asked God, what is your name? And God says, stand in the cleft of the rock. You can see my back, but not my
1: not my face. Yeah, so that's what I was saying. So you can't same see me and live, right? You, you right. can't fully encounter me. You can, you can encounter a mitigated experience right. of me. You um, can see my effect. You correct. You can see the footprints in the sand. Correct. You can't see the, correct. Past. You can see my wake, wake. is how you I <laughs> wake. think about it, but not right. But not the totality. Um, but it seems to be in any kind of relationship with the divine. What she's, what Smokler is suggesting that I find fascinating is that all this preparation is not just preparation. What she's suggesting is that this is instructions for how to be intimate, not just kind of an add-on, get ready, and then there's intimacy. She is suggesting these instructions are
2: about creating intimacy. When you see a new baby born, that's an approach. When you hear Beethoven or any other great musician, or you see a great piece of art, you're approaching that intimacy because you're seeing something greater than the human condition. Okay. All right, so come close, but not too close. Here at Sinai, this
1: message is now amplified for the entirety of the Jewish people. It is not clear whether the people so thirst for unbounded relationships that they require such repeated warning to keep them in check, or whether the repeated warnings are God's proactive way of educating them into balance. But note that the message is reiterated one last time before the revelation of the Ten Commandments ensues. And so here we get the quote that we just read um, right before the Ten Commandments, right at the end of chapter 19. Um, they're not to come up, set boundaries around on the mountain, then sanctify it, right? Lest, I mean, Aaron can come up, but not the priests or the people, lest God break out against them. There is a near obsession with transgression here. She says a palpable fear of, quote, breaking through the people's yearning for God might cause them to, quote, break through the prescribed boundaries. God's anger might potentially break out as a result. So just before the moment of revelation, Moshe is sent down one very last time to ensure that all parties maintain their distinctive lines. God will not enter the scene until people have satisfactorily exited from it. So is this the people's, because they are so unhealthy, because they have been slaves, is God concerned that they won't know how to be in relationships? So it's God's job to say, back it up, because they want unfettered, you know, like cloying intimacy because they're so desperate to feel taken care of, because we see what happens next week, right? They freak out, right? When they don't have it, they freak out and panic, like so... Is it that God is like being proactive and teaching them how to healthy relationship is God really concerned because God knows they are going to be like, "Ah," right? Suffocate, like wanting too much and the wrong kind of intimacy. You can read it either way. I think she's saying, but, but it's something about that. Like God is, it's like saying this people, this people is going to break out or, you know, break through and then I'm going to break out and I don't want that to happen. Right, so it's like when you hear a tone of voice that you set your teeth on edge and you know if you don't get out of the room, you're gonna break out right <laughs> Does this happen to anybody else uh, okay, it might have happened recently to me um
2: <laughs>
1: yesterday that um right, so it's, and it's like okay, I know i like they're, they're gonna they're breaking through in a way that it like is is get you know it's like I need to go so I don't break out um okay. Why? Why such an insistence on distance? Why the need for such repetition and reiteration? Why condition the divine revelation on human retreat? I submit that this was the beginning of the revelation, not in rules about human conduct, but in rules about human relationships. In circumscribing the mountain in this way, ensuring that the Jewish people would gain intimacy with God without transgressing God's boundaries, God was setting in place an enduring lesson regarding relationships of consequence. They always require room to breathe. They always demand enough separation to maintain a sense of distinction. Though we often yearn to merge with another or an other, capital O, We do so at great cost. This is why we don't have monasteries as the Jewish people, because of this. There's a temptation to unify completely with an other capital O and not do anything else. To just stay in that delicious state of union and completely dissolve one's own sense of boundaries and of time to be with the other capital O. This is not Jewish we do it once a week once a week okay that's fine you still have to cook you still have to feed the children you still so even though we do it once a week we don't do it alone on a mountaintop we do it around a shabbos table where we sing and we dance and we just schnapps and right it's still engaging in relationships in community in family in and all of that okay um Yes, David. So I just had a
3: you, you know that you're familiar with the Karen Armstrong. Yes. Book. So I just had a, a thought. What I it seems to me that the difference between Judaism and the Eastern religions that she talks about a lot of, is one of like Judaism is a is a religion of relationship and Eastern religions are very one of identification. You know you're either you're we're in a relationship with divine with a lot of Eastern with most Eastern it's. You're identifying yourself as a divine. I mean, not. I mean, so, so it it's uh oh, I'm I'm godly within, but but as opposed to I'm in relationship with mine. And it just I don't know. I
1: was just thinking about that as you were saying right. That. that that we we have a very ingrained respectful anxiety that doing the former is dangerous. Yeah. Right. That that totally identifying with the divine, become melding, and becoming a part of that—that—that that, is—that—that that is not the goal for us, right? That—that that there's a danger to that as human beings and human communities. That, and that—that that, that puts things out of balance. That as human beings, we need lots of things. One of them is union, maybe to some degree, with God. Maybe three times a day, even, right, in davening. And we need other things. We need to fix the kid's bicycle. We need that. It's good for us to be involved in fixing the plumbing. It's good for us, right, to cut down a tree in the backyard that's about to fall. Like, this is healthy for us. And being in relationship to other just regular old humans is a really important aspect of of what it means to be a healthy, mature, spiritual, embodied being sort so
3: you know religion is almost um, a hunger for the ineffable but um identification with it is sort of de- like we're hungry for it and it's a and maybe Judaism and other religions are a way to relate to the but identification is is um it, you know it's it's just interesting i, I don't know what else to
1: it is, say. it's fascinating
3: uh, you know, right it puts her books in a new light for me
1: yeah and it's why we love this stuff i think i just want to say that and um Next comes the Ten Commandments, and it feels like the Ten Commandments and the Mitzvot are about relationships, really, uh, with ourselves, yes. with God, with other people, with the earth. Yeah, half of the Ten Commandments are are directly about our relationship to the divine, and the other half are about our relationships with other human beings. And all of it is challenging <laughs> to actually uphold. Um, isn't Kabbalah the like the point where we unify with? with God more than like the legal laws. You know what I mean? Um, there is a definite hunger on the part of the Kabbalists to experience intimacy with the divine in a different way. They of course would have fulfilled all of halakha very carefully. They would have observed halakha very carefully. Um, and there is this very big pull by them to Unify, but they still have to go home to their wives and kids. So, so yes, I think that's part of the, the impetus of any kind of mystic is to unify with the divine. And it's made very clear you can't study Kabbalah till what age? By the time you're 40, you have six kids. You're very grounded. That's the reason you can't study Kabbalah until you're 40 is because you need to be mired in the responsibilities of adulthood to keep you from flying off into, you know, whatever. And there's a lot of criticism of Kabbalah for this reason. And it's why we have the misnagdim, right? It's it's why we have the folks who pushed back against all mystical experience saying that is not Jewish. That's not us. We don't do that. Right. So after the Kabbalistic period, that's what comes is a big push against it because it was seen as too dangerous for for this. I think for this exact reason, but
0: in the Ten Commandments, where we're not going mm-hmm, that you it, had to
1: bring up anyway.
0: Ta- well, you talk when you talk about Shabbat, mm-hmm. the command is you shall do your work, not my work. OK, we are partners.
1: E- exactly. OK. As if as if somehow. There is that separation,: right. you're not me. All right, so this in this yearning to merge with another, we flatten ourselves and we trample those we love. We suffer the confusions of convergence and the suffocations of possession. Oh. <laughs> the great irony and delicacy of intimacy we learn is that it is born of just the right amount of distance. Just the right amount of respect for the other party's otherness and our own. This balance can be so very hard to maintain. And so we must be reminded over and over again to responsibly come together. We must stay a bit apart. You shall set boundaries. This was the great revelation before the revelation. Because if because in, in, in losing ourselves in the other capital O, we've just talked about at great length the dangers of that. But the other danger is when we need too much to be intimate too much with another person and don't give them their boundaries and don't keep our own boundaries and take care of ourselves the way we need to take care of ourselves and look to someone else and in intimacy with them to do it, what happens is we flatten them, we smother them. That is not intimacy. That is need. That is something's lacking in me that I'm expecting you to fulfill by being all up in my face all the time, right? That that is not intimacy. It gets confused for intimacy. I think what Smokler is saying is to ha- that this is a a profound teaching. All these things about separateness and boundaries is a profound teaching about how to actually be in healthy relationship.
0: Mark. You know, one of the I, I think if you um, uh, take the the whole story from the slavery in Egypt up and through this, it becomes part of the bleeding obvious that in a way all of this has to do um, with the a uh, kind of uh, metaphor of, for the development of an individual human being, or the development of an individual human being is a metaphor for this, but. Um, uh, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with this. It's just that um, what what she is saying sounds, as to me, as though it could have been um, written in a psychoanalytic text. It's uh, it is. Uh, what do I want to say? I guess what I want to say, in a way, is that uh, uh, the separation anxiety is uh, really fundamental. It's one of the, one of the basic issues of all. Uh, the psyche and um the the uh the longing for a merger is ever present in everybody um and uh it's only through boundaries that uh, identity can take place and the loss of identity is is psychic death right because right. Uh, symbiosis is not life
1: right right and it is and it is it is the damaged terrified parts of us that want symbiosis when we're healthy and thriving we want intimacy right and um and that's the continual learning which is why we study it all the time is because right we have to be reminded all the time of the difference um it's like okay we we got that okay moving on now we're going to look at joshua i mean i know Judas really wants to but um but the rest of us are going to keep coming back to Genesis through Deuteronomy because we have to hear it over and over and over and over. We have to hear the important lessons all the time. And that's the work is that we hear it at a different level each time we come back to it. Right. And we continue to spiral, hopefully towards
2: becoming right healthier, more whole um, human beings. It meant more this time with this commentary than it ever has before. Yeah, it was it was
1: really powerful for me too. Thank you.
2: Um, so let's
1: look at her last words because I, I love them too. Though people sometimes bristle at the gaps on your last page, the last paragraph of the last page, though people sometimes bristle at the gaps that keep them from fully merging with another, to Mark's point, or turn away when overcome by fear of that which remains unknown, Moshe walked toward it, toward the obstacles, the gaps, the in-between places, the Arafel the dense cloud for there is where the hidden God resides. That is where relationships of consequence relationships that promote intimacy without convergence actually begin. May we be so blessed to come close, but not too close. Um, I will close with reading you the words of uh Merle Feld uh, poet saying, we all stood together. My brother and I were at Sinai. He kept a journal of what he saw, of what he heard, of what it all meant to him. I wish I had such a record of what happened to me there. It seems like every time I want to write, I can't. I'm always holding a baby, one of my own or one for a friend, always holding a baby. So my hands are never free to write things down. And then as time passes, the particulars, the hard data, The who, what, when, where, why slip away from me. And all I'm left with is the feeling. But feelings are just sounds, the vowel barking of a mute. My brother is so sure of what he heard. After all, he's got a record of it. Consonant after consonant after consonant. If we remembered it together, we could recreate holy time, sparks flying.
3: Sorry, it's just one final, because going back to the beginning, I was thinking about what you were saying, like we're dealing with this insecure, you know, neurotic people, basically. But isn't the way it starts, it's pumping them up. It's exactly what you would do with somebody who's insecure. It's saying, you know, I will take you on eagle's wings. You're big shots now. You're tremendous. You know, like you you basically start with that, and, and you pump up their egos a little bit, and then you say, okay, and now here, let's get down to business. We're going to, but, but it's it's almost like God or Moses or both of them know what they're dealing with. Like that's how you deal with somebody who's fragile. You basically emphasize the positive and how magnificent they are. And then you, you know, and it's just, it's just, inter- I never saw it in that light until
2: today. Right? Yes, Barbara. The confusion about being human for me is... <laughs>
1: Just one.
2: There's just one point of confusion. Main problem. (laughs) So we're here. We're in this envelope of a separate being, and we have this yearning for intimacy, either with other people or with other the other. And yet the uh, that why do we have such a desperate yearning for that kind of merging intimacy when it will annihilate us, the separate self, and why is being separate for so scary? You know, I'm thinking of my grand.
1: <laughs> Don't even get you started. Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, he's crying for several hours. How can that be good? But so there's a yearning that is inborn to be merged. But you're right, and all of these people are right, that the merging annihilates another person's
1: autonomy. All right, so wait, but let's be clear. I think what she's saying, I mean, and Mark, you, you go see Mark, and he'll talk to you for two hours about <laughs> separation anxiety and why why are we terrified of being alone? Like, you come into the world, you're an infant, you're completely dependent. If you get left alone, you die. So we're hardwired to not want to be alone because we're toast. And as you grow up, you're saber-toothed tiger food if you're not with the clan. So there, there's a way, I think we're hardwired to be afraid of being alone, but I think what she's, there's a difference between merging, having an intimate relationship across healthy boundaries and a healthy sense of self that does not annihilate the self. It enhances the self. When we are loved truly by another human who is healthy and whole and has good boundaries, and I have mine, when we choose to be intimate and cross those lines, that is a good thing. That is a healthful, healthy thing. The oxytocin that's real, I mean, everything that happens is a good thing. What she's saying, I think, is that we, we leap over these lines of Torah because we want to get to the good stuff. We want to get to the intimacy, right? We, we want the orgasm. We, we want, we want the intensity of union because it is so pleasurable. And that's, that's fine. But I think what she's saying is what we often don't talk about is, how you get a healthy intimacy that is not annihilating of the individual self, right? And and what she's saying is these initial verses are a teaching about the relationship that God is now inviting the Israelites into, humanity into. It's not just introduction. It's this is instruction, which is, which is the thing that blew my mind, right? That, oh, I never thought about that. These are not just, okay, here's what you have to do to get to the good stuff. Right? That's not the point. This is part of the good stuff is you have to start with healthy boundaries and a healthy sense of self and your own full life. And then you can bring me into that and I can bring you into mine. We can't be that for each other. That's codependency. That is annihilating of the self, right? Is I want to get lost in you because I don't feel safe to do that on my own. And it's not safe to stay alone all the time. I mean, I'm not. I'm not judging people who choose to do that. I'm just saying the way we're put together and the way Judaism sees things is that we're supposed to do this together. In, and there's all kinds of intimacy between us and four-legged creatures, um, between us and children, between us and other adults, between us and lovers, between right, between us and the divine. But there's all kinds of intimacy, and all of them are necessary, and they all have to begin with a healthy sense of Distance. Okay, let the second grade teacher speak now well, about relationships. I was going to say, you know, learning is a process and it takes repetition, and I think she said repetition and reiteration. So, you know, the separation and the coming, I mean, eventually the baby learns that they can self soothe and go to sleep. So there's some kindness in this process that, you know, is presented to the people. You know, at, at the mountain, here's here's your boundaries. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay without it's me. Oh yeah, but the hunger to do
3: it is. You're right. It's it's interesting. I mean, you have parents, sons. You know, like there is this.
1: Mm-hmm. Like we, like mm-hmm. We're all drug addicts. I mean,
3: I mean, <laughs> no, not, well, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We're oxytocin addicts. Yeah. Sure. Um, and that helped us survive. Literally. loneliness and depression and isolation and feelings of being cut off and separate. The the way that feels icky to us is designed to push us back to the group. There's nothing wrong with that feeling bad to us. It's what drives us back to the group because that's where we're safe. Est ultimately right is, is knowing we're together in this. Um, And once it literally meant our physical safety, but We're still the same people who were on the savannah. We've not changed. And we're still infants who are trying very hard to individuate. And we still want mom. We still want someone to protect us and someone with whom to unite so that we don't have to deal with the terrors of the universe on our own. We have The whole trick of this human business is how to figure out where those lines are. Where the healthy lines are and they shift based on our needs. When we're in a hard time, we often need more companionship. We need more from our friendships. We need more from our parents. We need more, God help us from our children, right? We, we, we need more contact. We need, when, when it's a hard time, right? And other times we're like perfectly happy to be on our own most of the day, like doing what we're doing and, and like scooting along and right. So they move. They're not permanent. But the trick is knowing what 's what, when it 's healthy, when it 's a good kind of drive to intimacy and collective identity, and when it 's about I really just don 't want to deal with this because i 'm too terrified
2: would you would you say that uh, sort of the m o of cults would be the annihilation of the individual
1: hundred percent
2: because that everything you 're saying makes me think of cult because i 've read a lot about cults and fits like. They wanted you become totally subscribed by the cult,
1: and the cult hundred percent, and and it makes perfect sense if that's really what drives you. If your primary anxiety is being alone, there is nothing better than a cult to tell you exactly what to do, Mm -hmm. and and to be together all the time, and the charismatic leader is mom. And can like take away all of your anxiety about making decisions. Cause you're never going to be left alone. If you, if you do what mom says right. and you'll always be taken care of and you'll be praised. And that's what we, what we want. We want to be fed and petted and praised. Right.
2: They call it love bombing.
1: Yeah. That's yes. Right. Yeah. And look, we need to do a lot of good love bombing around here too. Cause there's a healthy level of that of people feeling like they belong and are included in all of that. Right. So, um, yeah, so, oh, wait, what was I going to say? I also feel like this is, and, okay, I know it's a whole other conversation. I swear I won't go down the hole. But I think this is also the, the real attraction of totalitarian regimes, yes. which we are right on the edge. If you ask me, uh, it's a whole new thing I'm all about. I think we are at the edge of needing so much for something to have us feel unified that we are right on the edge of electing a totalitarian regime. We were right on the edge, right? We narrowly escaped voting in a totalitarian regime. Because I think because we are so divided, we are so anxious and are becoming so angry and fragile and insecure and alone because we can't talk to each other that we're now going to grasp for the unhealthy, unhealthy, authority figure to take that anxiety away we as a nation are and it's not just us we've talked about this before Israel Italy lots of places right now are I think are, are dealing with such anxiety as a result of modernity and as a result of the technological revolution that we are now flirting with electing mom as president so that I can be held and coddled and taken care of and I don't have to deal with that anxiety and I am deeply concerned about what that means for the experiment that is this democracy.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehilat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.